0: Please visit jcastnetwork.org.
1: Welcome to Daily DAF Differently. I'm David Greenstein. We're studying Masechet Ktubot, DAF Kuf Hei Amud Aleph Amud Bet, page 105 A and B in Tractate Ktubot. This page brings us to a new chapter. It's called Shnei Dayanei Gzeelot, or Shnei Dayanei Gzeirot. It begins at the end of 104. B, but the Mishnah continues on 105a, and the discussion proceeds from there. The Mishnah tells us that there were two magistrates, Admon and Hanan, but it's not clear what their judicial function was. The Talmud itself is unsure. Were they Dayanei Gzeelot or Dayanei Gezerot? Gezerot can be translated as rulings or decrees. Gzeelot means robberies. It seems that if they were magistrates having to do with issues of robberies, cases of robberies, then they were doing case law and they were adjudicating between aggrieved parties or criminals who were brought up on charges. But if they were Diane Gzerot, they were magistrates who were in charge of determining rules and regulations and were not necessarily involved face-to-face with litigants. Talmud, as I said, is not clear about exactly what they were really called or what they really did. This is a reflection of an earlier situation from the late Second Temple times where there were various kinds of courts or various kinds of judicial systems, some existing in competition with others. Indeed, the Talmud points out that there were probably many more than just two of such magistrates and the reason that these two are singled out is because our Mishnah chooses to perpetuate the record of a number of decisions that they made that became controversial. And with regard to this Mishnah, and with regard to the next Mishnah, rulings, two rulings by Hanan, we have a controversy between him and another group that is also mysterious, and they're called Bnei Kohanim Gedolim, literally the sons of the children of the high priests. And Of course there was only one high priest at a time, but this seems to allude to a group of priestly authorities who claimed for themselves the prerogative of deciding these rulings or these uh, decisions, and who opposed the rulings of Hanan. So we have some kind of perhaps proto-rabbinic situation with regard to Hanan, and an entrenched traditional priestly-based judicial group that is uh, opposed to this other system. The discussion of the Talmud focuses, before it gets into the subject matter of the Mishnah itself, on the issue of fair judges and a reputable judicial system. How do we ensure that? The question revolves around the vulnerability of the judges to influence by people who could pay them off. This is the issue of bribery, and in order to mitigate that risk, the necessity would be for a judiciary to be self-sufficient and independent. So there are two issues that are brought up as a result. How do we support a judicial system so that the judges can eat and function? And what do we do about the temptation to give bribes and to receive bribes? The word in Hebrew is Shochad. The Talmud points out that there was an Amorah, an early Amorah, Karna, and he would take money from the people that he was serving as a judge for. When two litigants came to him and asked him to judge their case, he would take the same small payment from each side and then he would embark on listening to the case. And this is how he was able to support himself as a judge. The Talmud doesn't understand how he could do this. It seems like he would be engaging in taking bribes. And the Talmud says you cannot say that because he took from both sides equally that he would not have ra- violated the prohibition against taking a bribe. So the answer is that it was very clear in Karna's case that he was taking money to pay him not to engage in his regular business. He was involved in the, w- in the wine business, he was a, a connoisseur who was able to decide on which wines were good and which wines were not, so he was in demand as such an authority. And in order for him to take a break from that work, in order to be a judge, he only did that by getting paid for his time. But that still brings us back to the question of the prohibition against taking bribes. Why should there be a prohibition if you're taking exactly the same amount of money up front from both sides? In that case, why would one be guilty of taking payment that would, as the words of the Torah puts it, somehow pervert the words of the righteous or blind the wise? In this case, whatever blindness or perversion one side would be causing would be offset by the other side giving the same amount of money. So the commentators try to uh, explain this in a number of ways they suggest that perhaps by taking the money from both sides, nevertheless the judge will be influenced uh, to be perhaps more easygoing, perhaps not as assiduous in examining the uh, claims of both sides, and he won't get down to the very, very root of the matter under dispute. I would suggest that perhaps another reason that it's not allowed to take these two payments from both sides is because Not only are we worried about perverting the words of the wise and of perverting the justice that would be administered, but we're also worried with perceptions. The public needs to have confidence in their judges and they need to believe that the judges are being fair. So when each of these litigants is giving money to the judge up front, no matter what the decision is afterwards, whether the litigant wins the case or loses the case, they can think that the judge was unduly influenced by the other person's bribe, since it's clear that he took money from the other side as well. So, the fact that he took money from both sides will not necessarily rationally convince the litigants that they have been given a fair trial. We know at the very end of the previous chapter Uh, in our Talmud 104b, the Talmud expresses the concern that we do not want there to be laz al-baydina. We do not want people to speak badly of the courts. So this may be another reason for the prohibition. On Amud Bet, we have the famous suggestion that the word shochad itself indicates the reason for the prohibition. The word is understood, is read to be shehu chad, that he is one, in order that he is at one. By offering a bribe, the person wants to take the judge and bring him over to his side to create a bond, to create a kind of an extra close relationship with that person so that they would only see their side. This raises the interesting and difficult question of the place of empathy and identification with the litigants that is the proper measure of identification and connection, and what goes beyond, over the boundaries. Uh, Recently, a number of years ago, when one of the chief justices was being considered, the idea of empathy was brought up as a positive quality for a judge. How can a judge really be able to understand what is at stake in a case if they don't understand what the litigants are themselves living through? And so the empathy that a judge has to feel for a person who comes before him or her is essential. On the other hand, shohad is forbidden because shohad goes beyond empathy. Shuhuchad. It makes the judge identify totally with the person before them in the case and instead of exercising empathy they are actually identifying unduly with that person. It's difficult to quantify how much empathy needs to be used by the judge, but one thing is for sure, the empathy has to be generated from within and not by an external payment